1: Afternoons with Rob
2: Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3,
1: 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the opposition parties have teamed up to overrule the liberals. We hear from conservative foreign affairs critic Aaron O'Toole about his successful motion to create a new committee to address Canada-China relations. Also, New Democrat MP Brian Massey intends to make another attempt at convincing Parliament to legalize single-event sports betting. The Alberta government has carved out an exemption for WHL teams in the province's Employment Standards Act, and that's not going over well with everyone. Plus, the clash between addictions treatment and freedom of religion is the 12-step program Religious in Nature.
3: 171, Nays, so 148, so-
1: This parliament is just days old, but already a defeat for the liberals. Now, it's not a defeat that brings down the government, doesn't thrust us into an election. But it's a great example, I think, of the opposition parties now being able to assert themselves a little bit in this minority parliament. And this is on a pretty important issue. It was an opposition motion to create a special committee that will review Canada's relationship with China uh, and be able to address some of these China related issues more specifically. So, as you heard, uh, the Liberals were outvoted 171 to 148, which means this committee will indeed be created and probably comes at a very crucial time in all of this. Joining us to talk more about it, the individual who tabled this motion, Aaron O'Toole, is the Foreign Affairs Critic for the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. O'Toole, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Good to be back, Rob.
1: All right, talk a bit about why you you felt that this was uh, something that needed to be created in the first place. What was the rationale for the motion?
4: Well, I think conservatives in our caucus, and certainly like most Canadians, don't have confidence uh, in the Prime Minister on the world stage, and I'm not overstating that. The India trip is is kind of known, first off, when you ask Canadians about the Prime Minister's trips abroad, but even his most recent trip uh, on the NATO meetings in London, we've created diplomatic uh, faux pas and and disputes from uh, the Middle East with Saudi Arabia to China to India to Italy to a whole range of these disputes. And in the case of China, we have two citizens that have been unjustly detained for a year. We've had billions in uh, exports unfairly tied up by China. We've had um, a number of issues that are are being delayed by the Liberal government, whether it's Huawei and the 5G, and a number of decisions they seem very reluctant to take. And our advice over the last year has literally been ignored. You know, we had no ambassador, Rob, for eight months in Beijing in the middle of all this, and we had been recommending an envoy or new ones so now the minority parliament can show that it wants to scrutinize the the decisions or the inactions of the government better and look at the wider cross-section of issues with china through this special committee
1: uh, and okay fair enough i mean obviously part of the government's argument is that we we have the foreign affairs committee the commons foreign affairs committee that can handle these issues why, why do we need a, a separate and specific committee on this
4: Well, that's what they put back. Uh, I was vice chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the last parliament and will be in this one. Um, The Foreign Affairs uh, Committee already delegates human rights, for example, to a separate subcommittee. We have separate committees on on trade, for example, uh, separate committees on uh, on a range of other things. This specialized committee that will exist for six months will be multidisciplinary. So everything will be about the relationship with China, right from consular and pure diplomatic uh, elements through to agriculture, defense, security, potentially telecommunications, human rights, um, and anything that is sensitive or classified, um, we will have the special provision to have information security and a special in-camera sitting. So this will be a professional and mature way to look at a number of serious issues across the whole spectrum, because right now, whether it's the Uyghurs and minority religious rights in China, whether it's the South China Sea Islands, uh, there's a number of really significant issues that aren't getting proper attention
1: uh and and so as we heard the the liberals were opposed to this motion they voted against it but um it did pass so i I think you know it's it's an important message to the government when it comes to other issues that they do have to take opposition considerations take them seriously but but also on this i mean the fact that i mean you have the ndp supporting this conservative motion i think that was encouraging as well
4: Absolutely, we appreciated the fact that the Bloc, um, the the NDP, uh, even Jody Wilson-Raybould, a former Attorney General, when uh, Meng Wanzhou was uh, arrested in Canada, she voted in favor. I think they saw we didn't put any, uh, you know, sort of red uh, flashpoint issues in the motion. It was very serious. In fact, we the motion said that the Liberals would chair the committee, but the the allocation would be uh, based on on uh, the. Proportions in the house, so the opposition will have as many spots as the government. So we'll have to forge collaboration. It will be in camera. So anything that happens in camera, like when I uh, questioned uh, Ambassador McCallum last January uh, in in camera, I couldn't raise what uh, what what was brought up in that. Committee session in the House of Commons. So there's a level of professionalism, the ability to to call some of the best experts, the ambassador, key people to the committee. I think the NDP supported a lot of lot of support, and several Liberals did. Their vote was whipped, and I think two or three abstained, which showed that many Liberals wanted this to happen too.
1: Uh, all right. So what happens now? Then when, when is this committee going to to hold its first meeting? How how is the, uh, the the composition of this committee going to be decided?
4: Well the numbers are decided there uh, there are going to be 6 um uh... liberals with the chair four conservatives uh... and one in one from the block and ndp it we will have a meeting in january in terms of, of uh... setting up the committee and putting out a schedule but beyond that i will likely just be one voice rob in in how the committee becomes the master of its own domain uh... it may or may not release a public report a report to parliament at the end uh... the the agenda and how they call witnesses will really be decision of the committee and it's intent by our motion to end in June. So this is not creating a separate committee forever with China. But after the last year, I don't think there's a single Canadian that could say um, the crisis with China when it comes to our citizens or exports or other things is is, is going well. I don't think anyone could say that. Even no. some Liberal MPs said that to me. So this is going to be a a committee for a certain period of time it will be specialized professional and i'm very optimistic that it will send a signal to the chinese that we value the relationship but we're not willing to uh, sacrifice values and concerns we have about other issues just for the tremendous economic opportunity in in china so i think it's a mature way to look at this other countries have done similar things so i'm very proud the
1: conservatives brought this to parliament What do you think needs to be the first order of business, whether it be for this committee or even for the government itself when it comes to dealing with China? I mean, what is our most pressing concern at the moment?
4: Well, right at the moment, of course, it's our citizens. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spavor um, are in our minds, and I I have no doubt that the minister and the prime minister want to see their return. Uh, Our concern has been that when Minister McCallum had to resign as the ambassador, uh, we had a big... um, uh, hole in Beijing for Canada and things kept getting worse so we're gonna have a number of questions about certain decisions there. Um, so I think that will be one of the first orders of business. Personally I would like the first meeting to be a public meeting uh, so to be some sort of preliminary uh, overview of a few issues that could be public as most committees normally are and then the committee can determine uh, how many uh, committee meetings will be uh, will be held in camera due to the sensitivity of information that sort of thing but i want canadians to to, to be able to see that parliamentarians are working together on a very important issue for our citizens but also for China. I've, Rob, I've called Canada getting the balance with China right, the foreign policy challenge of our generation. China is a major world power. It, it's only going to grow in influence. We have to be able to get this balance of, of opportunity and challenge. We need to get it right and we need to uh, to start now because the last year has been a bad one for Canada-China relations
1: well and and that's true and and I mean by in some respects I mean Canada does need to stand up for itself, stand up for its values and and so a good relationship is is not necessarily what what we're after if if it means you know we have to 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 cave on these points right so uh there there are going to be challenges in a relationship like this, but sometimes there there has to be, doesn't there
4: Absolutely. And I think China also needs to see that we're taking this seriously and we view ourselves as a peer, just like we view ourselves as a peer with the U.S. and the U.K. and others. Our economy may be smaller, but Canada is a very important player. We're a G7, a NORAD, NATO country. We're the only one that are in all those agreements, including the Five Eyes Security Partnership. Mm-hmm. But we're very much a free trading global a democracy, a Western democracy that has respect for human rights rule of law, and this is where we 're going to clash with with countries like China at times and how we approach those differences is is really how we 're going to show whether we 're mature in the relationship or whether we view ourselves as subservient and I often retur- refer to the funny quote from Justin Trudeau before he became prime minister that he admired the basic dictatorship. We often right. make fun of that. But some of the early steps of the Liberal government uh, approving transactions of of companies like ITF and and Norsat to to Chinese-controlled companies that upset the Pentagon. That upset our allies. There was a very pro-Beijing feel to the early Trudeau government. The, the private cash for access fundraisers with with Chinese um, uh, businessmen donations to the Trudeau Foundation. It's four years ago now, but that's how things started off. And there was an assessment that Canada was putting our values in the back seat. We need to get that balance right. I thought Stephen Harper had the balance right at, at the end of our government, but we even struggled uh, with it. So I think bringing an all-party committee to this uh to to get the balance right for canada going forward over the next decade i think is a smart move
1: well we got a a couple of important decisions looming i mean one of them you alluded to it involves uh huawei and and 5g Uh, the other is the question of whether to invoke the justice for victims of corrupt foreign officials act our our magnitsky law there there's a motion from uh, two conservative senators to to that end uh so where do you stand on those two questions
4: Great question. You know, uh, I talk to my Senate friends all the time. Uh, Our Commons Caucus is not quite where they are yet. You know, the upper chamber does its own thing often, Mm -hmm. uh, even more in in this day and age. But what I've said is we should be able to say to the Chinese, look, we have Magnitsky sanctions. They were brought forward by the Conservatives, held up by Minister Dion and Minister Freeland, to her credit. Uh, Embrace them. And we've used them against some uh, Russian individuals and Venezuelans we should be able to say to China, look, we have a tool like this that can be used when there's conduct that doesn't meet the norms of the rules-based system or how mature countries deal with one another and deal with serious issues. I don't think we're there using it yet, but we should start to say, this is in our toolbox, and we may not have the economic clout that you do, but we have a series of measures that we don't want to use, but let's talk Turkey, let's get our citizens home, let's get our exports moving, let's be able to Set this back up as a as a relationship of respect and a peer based relationship, as opposed to, you know, virtually no talking, no dialogue in the last year, and uh, and really no plan from Canada. So, the Magnitsky issue will be one that will have to be explored, and the five the five G. Our position as conservatives has been that. Huawei uh, should not be part of our 5G network because we have a 5 Eyes security alliance that we would probably lose membership in if our allies could not depend on our systems. And we have to remember, in, in another 10 years, the Internet of Things, everything we rely on, Rob, will be tied through the 5G infrastructure. So that is a critical infrastructure and security need for Canada. Uh, we have to have absolute certainty with respect to, to that critical utility of the, of the future. And I think in the current confines, uh, we can't be assured of that with Huawei.
1: All right. Well, looking forward to seeing the, the work this committee does uh, and certainly a significant uh, vote last night in the House of Commons. Aaron O'Toole, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
4: Thanks for covering this.
1: All right. All the best to you. That is uh, Conservative MP uh, for the riding of Durham in Ontario, uh, Aaron O'Toole. And he is the party's uh, critic, shadow minister, whichever term you prefer, on uh, foreign affairs. So he will be sitting on this new committee that the House of Commons voted last night to approve over the objections and over the votes of the Liberals. Maybe having a team in Las Vegas helps, but there, there seem to be changing attitudes with regards to professional sports and single-event sports betting. And for a long time, uh, pro sports were uh, adamantly opposed to, to this. But that started to change. And so as those attitudes change, it's a time that our laws get with the times and adjust to this new reality as well. Uh, on separate occasions in the past, uh, legalizing single-event sports betting has been defeated in Ottawa. Well, it did actually pass the House of Commons in 2012, but died in the Senate. A uh, similar bill was uh, brought before the House in 2016 and was voted down. Uh, but not only have times changed, uh, I think there is a growing, there is certainly growing support for for this change. Uh, back in April, uh, the Doug Ford government, uh, in a letter to the federal government, urged. Uh, changes to the criminal code that would legalize single event sports wagering in Canada. Uh, so there is uh, support for this from, from across the political spectrum. Uh, and our next guest has uh, been uh, on this uh, quest for quite some time himself. Uh, and it sounds as though there's going to be another attempt at uh, bringing this forward in the nation's capital. Uh, so joining us on the line is uh, Brian Massey. He's the new Democrat MP uh, for Windsor West. Uh, thanks for joining us here, Brian. Appreciate it. Oh,
2: thanks for having me. Appreciate All it. right. So, um,
1: yeah, it, you, you've brought this bill forward before, haven't you?
2: Yeah, it's been a couple of times. I took over for Joe Comartin uh, when it actually was stuck in the Senate for a number of uh, years. Uh, as he became deputy speaker, I took it once um, it had passed the House of Commons, and it languished there for a couple of years. And then we revisited during the start of last Parliament uh, with a vote that um, didn't pass in the House of Commons. We had the uh, the Conservatives mixed on the, the vote, um, with some support, some against, and then we had uh, the Liberal Cabinet uh, vote against it, um, and New Democrats voted for it. Um, but it wasn't enough. It was just shy of uh, passing the House of Commons and moving on at that time.
1: All right. So uh, it's your intent, though, to to give this another shot. Is that the case?
2: It, it is. And we're working, you know, with everybody again to try to get this uh, forward. There's a couple of reasons why is that not only um, is there the self-interest of making sure that um, there is, uh, I guess, revenue that would come in for a whole host of of social projects and important things from infrastructure to uh, extra resources for uh, programs and government revenue uh... in eliminating organized crime as the sole recipient um, and uh... Of, of sports betting in canada is the real problem that we're faced now in the world is that we will be the outlier um... as united states states move towards the implementation of this and yeah. europe has already done it
1: yeah, a few things have changed. I mean, obviously, the, um, the various pro sports leagues, I think, are evolving their views. But I mean, a big, big factor was the Supreme Court ruling in the United States. So uh, a lot of the arguments that were there before, you know, the, these leagues are uh, against it, uh, that this is illegal in the United States. You can't really make those arguments anymore.
2: No, and they were pretty shallow when they were made the first time. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, we had worked with a number of different sports organizations, and, for example, the NBA was on board last time. Um, Basically, the NHL with Gary Bettman was a big holdout uh, from previous uh, attempts, and uh, it really boiled down to self-interest, but it was also hypocrisy because, uh they've had sports betting on their website uh for many years with regards to draft kings i think it is or something along that lines where they can go ahead and bet on other things and you don't receive cash but you receive other prizes so one form or another of unaccountable um, and unregulated sports betting has been taking place even on single event stuff so this just kind of brings a light to it it also provides accountability and then more importantly uh it will also uh, really also provide a drive for the economy because we'll also have a chance for some tourism and a few other things. So there's lots of different factors in place here. But the most important thing is we take um, uh, money away from organized crime that uh, we don't have to have them being the sole recipient of single-event sports betting.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the, the tourism, boot. I mean, obviously where you are in Windsor and, uh, you know, a large pool of Americans right across the border, I mean, the, the idea of uh, coming across to Windsor, making a bet on the Super Bowl, that, that would be pretty attractive.
2: Well, for sure, and there is no doubt that um, the Final Four and those things, but Michigan yeah. is moving much quicker than we are, so the problem that we yeah. have is that we will become a bastion for organized crime, really, for single-event, unregulated sports betting if we don't get our act together. So we've gone from a position of strength and a uh, position of taking opportunity of a situation to being on the defensive, but it's never too late, and we still don't want to be left in a situation where uh, use back rooms, uh, basements, and uh, offshore accounts as the only way to do a regulated thing that um, uh, should be a regulated thing that uh, most people are actually enjoying,
1: right? And, and it is weird in Canada because we, we allow what's known as parlay bets. Uh, Proline and Sports Select are, are the most well-known ones. So we, it's okay, I guess, to bet on three events, but it's illegal under the criminal code to bet on one event. I mean, it just—it it seems really strange, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. And you think about it, I mean, why is, you know, one's not appropriate, two's not appropriate, but three, four, five, six, up to, you know, several are appropriate. It's because it goes back to basically colonial laws that uh, prohibited us because we had... Uh, mercenaries and soldiers and others that were uh, dissuaded from having single-event sports betting or event betting in general, not really sports, but other activity because of um, criminal activity and, um, I guess, other problems that would occur. So, you know, this is this goes back a long time. Uh, we need to modernize that, just like we did for dice games. Uh, dice games were illegal for a longest period of time, and so what it does is it drives it to the underground economy, and when we're looking at our crime in our communities, um, the best thing we can do if we want to try to Uh, move forward to address them is cut off the revenue stream uh, for some of these activities. And uh, without the revenue stream uh, it's much more difficult to get some of the things that they want to do in our activities in our community. So Cutting the revenue stream off with this would be good, and it would redirect it towards public improvements like infrastructure, and that's why uh, we believe that the regulated market will also provide an opportunity for accountability for the consumer. So this way, if you do that, you know that you're not actually accidentally funding organized crime, that you're actually funding, say, for example, building a road or a hospital in your community.
1: Now, it does seem to be an issue that kind of transcends party lines. I mentioned earlier the, uh, the Ontario government in a letter to, to the federal government earlier this year called on, on this change. And I, I'm sure you probably wouldn't agree uh, with the Ford government on many other issues. But th- this is one that, that does kind of transcend party lines. So w- what, what does that tell us about the prospects uh, for change this time?
2: Well, it's hopeful. I mean, the reality is is that we still have a lot of conservatives that are blocking this uh, for one reason or another, mm. and I still have a lot of liberals that are undecided on. I recently just spoke in the House of Commons uh, about this. I had a conservative member uh, be non-committal to it whatsoever, and didn't really understand it. And then the second one, I asked a liberal, and he even voted for it last time, was unsure. So there still seems to be misinformation out there. So there's a lot of work to be done, and um, the NDP have included this because we believe that. The accountability has to be there for um, the public betting and then also the revenue that would come for it redirected for social causes and then also limiting, again, the infrastructure. Um, uh, money that organized crime uses uh, from this activity is is very critical to get out a lot of problems. So those are the reasons I've been on this for some time, and it's always great to see other uh, governments come uh, on board, including you know the Ontario Conservative government. Um, that's nice to see. But I've had in the past provincial governments from all political stripes on side. Uh, it just hasn't been able to get through the House of Commons for one reason or another.
1: All right. Well, hopefully this time will be different. Brian, we'll, uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for this.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: All right. There you go. That's uh, Brian Massey, new Democrat MP for Windsor West. Uh, so he says he intends on bringing this forward in this minority parliament. And let's hope it succeeds this time. Uh, I think it makes all kinds of sense to, to finally end this silly prohibition, especially if, if the U.S. is heading in that direction. So if more U.S. states are going to legalize this, it's going to be a lot easier for Canadians uh, to make those bets. With foreign companies. Really, that's what we're doing right now. There, there's all kinds of different uh, sports betting websites. There's you know, a ton of them in, in the UK. So, yeah, there, there are ways, I guess, for Canadians to make these bets. Either illegally in Canada, kind of uh, you know, under the table, so to speak, or, or to do so through uh, offshore betting. And why? It's really strange. So you can bet on three games... Uh, through Sports Select or ProLine. But if you wanted to bet on the Grey Cop, that's illegal under the Criminal Code of Canada. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to turn our attention to the question of Major Junior Hockey, which I guess is going to uh, maybe have a different name. I know we're changing the names of uh, some of the other levels of hockey, but Major Junior Hockey. Um, it's not quite minor hockey, obviously, but it's not quite professional hockey. Or maybe it is professional hockey. Certainly, these are businesses. Uh, the the companies, the individuals that own major junior CHL hockey teams are, are certainly uh, in it to make a dollar. And some of these junior hockey teams do make a lot of money. So are these players employees? Well, there's been a lot of debate around that for uh, a long time. Now, what, that brings us to what's happening here in Alberta. And a decision by the Alberta government... Uh, to amend the Employment Standards Act to specifically carve out an exemption uh, for the Western Hockey League. So that makes uh, Alberta-based WHL clubs eligible to pay their players below minimum wage, essentially. So should they be paid at all? Should they be considered employees? Should they have rights under employment legislation? Well, there were a lot of those who were advocating for exactly that and a lot of concern being raised uh, about what this decision might mean. So joining us uh, for some uh, further thoughts on, on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon. Uh, Randy uh, Gumley uh, is a spokesperson uh, with the World Association of Ice Hockey Players Union, the North American uh, division representing uh, players in Canada. Randy, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. All right. So, what's the concern about uh, what what the Alberta government has done here?
3: Well, I think uh, the main concern is that they actually just carved out a, a whole section or a whole business uh, without any consultation with uh, any of the groups or the the players or the employees that are involved. That's some, somewhat worrisome. But I think the bigger picture is that the um, you know these young men who work for these for-profit businesses, and these are for-profit businesses who generate an estimated about $400 million a year in revenue, uh, but yet failed to comply with employment standards laws uh, for the last two decades after being notified that they that these players were, in previous court um, filings, actual players that are considered employees under the Government Act. Mm-hmm. And the league is a professional league. It's self-administered admitted that uh, the league is a professional league in their own filings and corporate documents, contractual obligations with uh, uh, CHL and USA Hockey, and more importantly, business filing applications such as Trademark, where they put down that their league is a professional league, not to mention their very own lease agreements with municipalities that call them professional. The only reason now they want to be called amateur within the government system is to try and mitigate their damages in the class action proceeding that was filed against them in 2014. And the bigger issue with that is that uh, these teams and the leadership in Hockey Canada and the CHL, uh, they want to keep it as an amateur league for government purposes, but a professional league outside the auspices of hockey Because that contaminates a player, disqualifies a player from being eligible to the NCAA. So they want to have the best of both worlds. They want to have these kids as amateur athletes, even though there's about $100 million in NHL salaries contributed to these players right now that are playing in the CHL and under contract by National Hockey League teams and paid by National Hockey League teams in signing bonuses up to $90,000 a player, but they want that to be considered an amateur athlete. And thank God the federal government has stepped in to say that they're not uh, recently just in Alberta. There was an application for some funding with the infrastructure, where the federal government refused to grant the money because the Red Deer team is considered a pro team. Now, the CHL has known about this for, this is not something that's been secret for them. They've known about it since 2000, since that court case came to fruition with the Mayor Kerman case that classified players as employees, but yet they tried to conduct business uh, and try and circumvent labor laws in order to not pay these kids, which is really a disgrace. And I think that the government in Alberta has done an injustice here. Given the climate of hockey right now, with all of the abuses that are coming out against players, if you can't get an NHL player to speak out about abuse 10 years after, He's left the game. How can you expect a 16-year-old or a 20-year-old to speak out why he's trying to earn a trade in that area? And all that the Kenny government has done here is taken away one avenue or one level of protection that would allow these kids a different avenue to report either abuses or to have other types of protections under the Employment Standards Act.
1: Right. I mean, it's interesting when it comes to junior hockey in Canada because employment standards, labor laws, it's it's provincial. So in the WHL's case, there's a couple teams in Manitoba, teams in Saskatchewan, some teams in Alberta, mm-hmm. some teams in B.C., and even some teams in the United States. Uh, so how does how does that work in practice then when you've got a league that, that covers all these different different jurisdictions, but then you've got provinces with their own laws? Because obviously the Alberta rules only apply to the Alberta teams, right?
3: Right, and again, some of the other uh, provinces have amended the employment standards laws to reflect uh, that. But I, I, I want to take a step back. The gov- these government officials that change or amend these laws are being lobbied by these very powerful hockey. It's bigger than the church. I mean, let's be honest. Hockey is, you know, Canada's game. Everyone thinks the same. But Hockey Canada and, and the CHL has operated for decades under a cloud of secrecy. No one knows where the funds are going. No one knows where uh, these investigations into these allegations of, you know, abuse takes place. It's all done for cloud. But the, these government officials that get lobbied are fed a picture, and that was very relevant in the B.C. Um, lobbying efforts. We got an FOI request from the B.C. government on how they were lobbied. And ironically, which was left out in the the information to the government, was about $100 million worth of revenue. So how can these government officials, without properly investigating and looking at the whole scope of this business model, because it's not limited to the CHL? Nobody in Canada or U.S. even thinks about who's the major benefactor of this. You may think it's the CHL clubs and the owners. It's not. The National Hockey League is the major benefactor of all of these employment law changes because they get to restrict the trade of players that are drafted within the National Hockey League, assign them to CHL teams from the age of 18 to 20, mm-hmm. pay them a minimum wage, of, or not a minimum wage, but a wage of 50 bucks a week if they're not uh, signing, uh, signing bonuses, but yet they still own their rights. And ironically, in the WHL, A player who signs, I hope you're sitting down for this, who enters into a contract with a a WHL team, if he wants to leave that team to go and pursue another avenue of career in an actual trade uh, hockey organization that would pay him a salary, the player must pay the team a $500,000 release fee. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's in the standard player contract. So when you think about what, why that is in place, it's because the CHL's business model is to gear and put all the talent to the National Hockey League.
1: So if an 18-year-old playing in the WHL gets an offer right. from a, a team in Europe, a pro team in Europe, yeah. Yeah. that he would have to, that that's, that's how he would get out of the, the WHL contract.
3: That's right. He would have to pay $500,000 or the team would have to pay $500,000. So it's meant as a deterrent. Considering that National Hockey League teams only pay up to $200,000 for developmental fee for a thing, you're asking another league to play almost three times much more than what a $6 billion industry pays for player development within the CHL system.
1: All right. So and and regarding the change in Alberta, so under the Employment Standards Act, it defines uh, the term employee. An employee does not refer to... um, an amateur athlete. Then it goes on to say an amateur athlete would include an individual who is a player on a Western Hockey League team. So it's, it's very specific uh, change in wording here. Um, yeah. w- how should the Alberta government have handled this then, in your view?
3: Well, I mean, is it really up to the Alberta government to determine what an amateur athlete and what a professional athlete is? I mean, let's, let's be clear here. If the CHL and WHL teams can't, by their own bylaws and own agreements, which they classify players as professional, if they classify them as professional, why, why are they going to the government to ask them for amateur status when the Amateur Athletic Association doesn't doesn't have them? And then they, they try and hide behind the umbrella that, well, we're members of Hockey Canada. Well, the Canadian Hockey League is not a member of Hockey Canada. The Canadian Hockey League is a partner, so is the National Hockey League. It doesn't mean that the National Hockey League is an amateur league. And this is a problem because all of these government officials are being fed the same Kool-Aid and they're all drinking it because they think it's hockey and they think that these guys are really actually after the best interest of the players when it's really, this is about money and about not having to pay players. And the teams are not scared of minimum wage. A couple hundred thousand dollars a year would be nothing for these guys. What they are scared of is the agents will come in and for top talent, they won't be asking for minimum wage. And the NHL will have to ante up some more money. But how should the government uh, have conducted this? I think what they should have done is ask for the books. Let's see the business model. Let's talk to the players. And you can always tell at a government when they're really proud of the work that they've done in creating changes or creating some sort of business model or or government legislation that they're proud to declare. They hold out the red carpet and they do a really good promo about this. This was done in secrecy. This was done as an order in council. This was done just by a press release and hoping right around Christmas time in the midst of a hockey climate where there's other issues that are in the forefront in the hopes that this would just fall by the wayside. Well, unfortunately it's not because these players want to get paid. And that's quite evident in Alberta in the class action lawsuit where uh, there was over a thousand players that were contacted to see if they would opt out of the class action only 61 players opted out, and the majority of those players are current players in the National Hockey League or are working with clubs within the, within the CHL or NHL. And they just don't want to have the fear of reprisal against them. It's not so much the protection of the elite athlete. We're looking at the kids that are trying to earn a scholarship within the CHL, but are contaminated deliberately from obtaining scholarships to the ncaa because the CHL classifies their own players as
1: professional yeah it is a strange situation i agree uh randy we got to leave it there much more w-a-i-p-u dot c-a thanks so much for coming on with us here this afternoon appreciate it thanks very much all right Right uh randy gumbly spokesperson now with the world association of ice hockey player unions uh w-a-i-p-u dot c-a and look he's got a point that the, the CHL does seem to want to have it both ways when it comes to whether or not these are professional athletes. And clearly the NCAA recognizes them as professional athletes, which is why you can't get a scholarship if you're playing in the CHL. Now, you do get the opportunity to play top-level hockey. You've got the opportunity to get a university scholarship uh, if you play four years in, in the CHL. But uh, how do we recognize these players? And how should labor laws, employment standards laws, recognize these players? And there's some big questions there. All right, freedom of religion is a fundamental uh, freedom uh, in uh, in this country. It's written uh, right there into the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Does it apply, though, when it comes to addiction treatment? There's a really interesting case that's been going on for a while in Vancouver uh, about a nurse. Uh, His name is Byron Wood. And was forced to go into addiction treatment as, as part of um, the, uh, the conditions of his employment with the Vancouver Coastal Health. Now, his concern, being a non-religious person, was that he was being forced to attend AA meetings. And said that because of the religious component of AA, that this was discriminatory. This was unfair. This was a violation of his religious freedom. So like I say, this case has been going on for some time, but it has now been resolved and resolved in Byron Wood's favor. The B.C. Health Authority has settled this human rights complaint with Byron Wood, who lost his job, by the way, uh, after refusing to attend AA. Not that he was refusing to get treatment, but was refusing specifically to attend Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the uh, details of the settlements uh, are being kept confidential. But Vancouver Coastal Health has had to change its addiction treatment. So those who require addiction treatment will now have a way of meaningfully registering their objection to these kinds of 12-step programs. So an important principle, I think, being established through all of this, someone who's been watching all of this very closely is Ian Bushfield. He's executive director of the BC Humanist Association. Uh, Ian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me back, Rob.
1: All right. Well, as I say, I mean, you, you guys have been keeping a close eye on this case. Why, why was it so important from your perspective?
0: A lot of our members are non-religious, and it's our general point of view that the government or employers shouldn't be forcing people into religious-based programs. Uh, I think it's important to, for your listeners to realize that when we talk about AA and the 12 steps, six of those steps involve appealing to a higher power, namely God, mm-hmm. you know, submitting yourself to it and for an atheist that just doesn't you know add up
1: right i mean if that if that works for somebody fine but the idea that it should be the default mandatory official treatment that that's problematic exactly um so uh, how do we decide then what what kind of treatment works here what why should there be other options available
0: I think we have a growing body of literature looking at addictions treatments and how to deal with this. I mean, here in Vancouver, we're in the middle of a opioid and overdose epidemic, and we're seeing that ripple across the country and communities. And so, there's a lot of attention and a lot of effort being figured out into how to get people better. And for some people, uh, abstinence AA-type programs are a part of that. But we're finding for a lot of people, other Uh, strategies are necessary, whether it's involving harm reduction or some kind of safe supply type approaches. The key just being we need to test the claims that are being made by the treatment program against the results they deliver. It's basic science.
1: Uh, Just your thoughts on on, uh, Byron Wood here. I mean, um, you know, he lost his job. He's been fighting, I think, for for some six years now. Uh, So finally some vindication for him, but, but he's been through quite an ordeal, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, we've spoken to him a number of times, and it's, it's a lot to take on a case like this. We hear about in the news every once in a while someone taking on a human rights complaint or somehow trying to challenge what they see as an injustice, and you kind of forget that you know there's a human being at the center of every one of those cases, and it's usually someone who's not in a good situation. Like, Byron was challenging this while trying to find work that he could do, but the job he trained for, being a nurse, he wasn't allowed to do, and so he's taken this on at huge personal cost, at a lot of time and energy and effort put into it. But I think the result he's managed to achieve is one he can be very proud of.
1: Now, it would appear as so though this is rather narrow in scope that Vancouver Coastal Health has now been forced to adjust its policies. But I mean, there's some broader principles I think that that should go well beyond simply Vancouver Coastal Health. But what kind of a follow do you think there's going to be beyond this case?
0: I think it was inherently going to be limited no matter what. The case was always sort of between him and his employer, Coastal Health. But the health region is a public employer. It's a part of the government in a way. And so I think other health regions we've seen across BC start to have similar cases brought up and individuals raise their objections and start to look at their own policies. And we hope that this will also inspire other organizations and employers and governments across the country to, to reflect on their own policies and make sure that if someone needs treatment that they should be able to get the treatment that works for them
1: right so hopefully this this will set a precedent then I mean it may, it may involve others having to, to fight for their rights as, as Byron Wood did but uh, at least now maybe we've we've got a case that can set the set a path for uh, for for others to succeed
0: I mean I'm not a lawyer but I think settlements can't really be used for precedential value but there is sort of a principle recognized yeah. here that uh, we should be seeking inclusivity, and Canada, Canadian courts have been clear that our governments have a duty of religious neutrality. And when it comes to human rights legislation in the private sector, you know you can't, your employer can't fire you for being religious or atheist unless it's a church. But you know, the radio station can't fire you for being an atheist or whatever you do believe in. Right, oh.
1: exactly. Well, and and that's an important point here because, you know, Byron Wood was not refusing to get treatment, uh, but he mm-hmm. had some specific objections to this specific kind of treatment. And and so that, I mean, that's the point here. If if there are other options, other treatment options available, I mean, it, it's hard to understand why those wouldn't be options for, for someone like this.
0: Yeah, I think it relates to just the newness, almost, of the approach of uh, looking at addictions treatment in a more evidence-based medicine way. For a long time, it was a very small field dominated by, you know, a a small number of personalities who probably had very personal connections to AA and that kind of approach. And as we see new research centers start up and look at different modalities and different techniques, I think we're getting a lot more skeptical analysis brought to this, and that's a good thing.
1: It yeah, definitely is. Much more at uh, bchumanist.ca. Ian, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate right. it. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Ian Bushfield, executive director of the BC Humanist Association. that They've been uh, uh, observing this case over the last few years. Uh, so it is resolved, uh, as I guess Byron would hope that it would. I mean, though it took six years to get to this point. Uh, so there's a settlement here. The details of that, uh, are, I guess, uh, will remain confidential. Uh, but it does appear as though Vancouver Coastal Health has changed its policies. So anyone working for Vancouver Coastal Health will not be required to attend AA or similar religious-based treatment programs if that approach to treatment conflicts with their religious or non-religious beliefs, which seems pretty reasonable. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's certainly it's been accepted by courts in the U.S. that Alcoholics Anonymous is religious-based. And I mean, it very clearly is, I think, when you read the, the 12 step principles or the 12 step program. So, if it is religious based in nature, then I think you know, we, we need to, to reflect on that. If that works for certain people, then so be it. But that's not going to work for everybody. And I think at the same time, there is kind of a rethinking of the, um, the validity of the 12-step program, that perhaps it's not as effective as maybe we've been led to believe, and that there are other perhaps more effective treatments available when it comes to addiction. So if the policy is uh, that someone who, who works for this organization uh, and needs addiction help is going to go get that help, that there should be different options available.